Indeed, thanks be to God. As I said at the outset, this is a this is a challenging passage. This is a challenging text. This is a complicated issue. Worry. Anxiety. The first complication that we face actually is is in the translation itself because in our translation in the NIV Jesus says, do not worry. In other translations, it says, do not be anxious. So which is it? Don't worry or don't be anxious. Are are those things the same or are those things different? Well, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know, so I had to do a lot of research. And, And what I've discovered in my reading is that worry and anxiety are somewhat different, but of course there's a bit of overlap. Apparently worry is something that is largely manifested in the mind, whereas anxiety can often also be manifested in the body. Worry uh, tends to be about something specific. So I got a big test coming up, and I'm worried about how I'm going to do on that test, whereas anxiety can very often be uh, sort of vague. A person who's dealing with anxiety can't really pinpoint what it is that's making them anxious. They just know that they're worked up about something, or maybe they have so much anxiety that they're worked up about everything. But regardless, it is this sort of vague sense that they have inside of them. Worry is often very temporary. Anxiety seems to be far more persistent. When I was doing this research and looking up, you know, how does this get described, etc. One psychologist said that anxiety, people who struggle with anxiety and have anxiety, it's, it's as if they're, they're living with the theme of Jaws, always kind of playing in the background of their lives. Like, you know, there's, there's something out there in the future that I'm afraid of, but I don't even really know what that thing is. And so a person with worry, they have an immediate concern that they're facing. A person with anxiety doesn't necessarily have an immediate thing that they can pinpoint, pinpoint but they have a, a vague fear or, or concern about the future. And so they find themselves often spinning out scenarios of, of things that could happen to them or things that could happen to their family or things that could happen to the world, and it gets them all worked up. So the question is, what is it? Is Jesus saying don't worry, or is he saying, don't be anxious? And if I've learned nothing from Tim Keller, or if I've learned anything from Tim Keller, in a situation like this, you always say, it's both. (laughs) It's both. The Bible doesn't make these same kind of fine distinctions that we do uh, with respect to these different things that are happening to us. Notice that Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. So Jesus is talking about specific things, right? So yeah, you shouldn't worry. But then he also talks about the vague future because in verse 34, he says, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. So Jesus has both these immediate things that can pop up in our lives and freak us out and these vague things about a a future that is unknown and undetermined in mind. And he counsels us not to worry. In fact, actually, Jesus commands us not to worry. He says, do not worry. He doesn't say, try not to worry. He doesn't say, give it your best shot. He says, don't do it. 
And he says it several times. This is actually a command. And that kind of brings up another complication because you you say to yourself, if you're me and probably you, you're saying to yourself, what do you mean command? How, How can you command someone not to worry, command someone not to be anxious? How can you just say, don't do that? Anxiety, people who have anxiety, they don't wake up in the morning and say, I really plan on being anxious today. I really plan on getting worked up and having stomach aches and headaches and and whatever other physical manifestations that come with being anxious. They don't do that. They say, this anxiety is unchosen. It is unwanted. It is utterly involuntary. And yet Jesus is telling me to not to worry. So if I do worry, if I am anxious, is that a sin? And the answer is, maybe. And you might think, well, you're just hedging, you're just fudging a little bit, Pastor. Well, no. The Bible is a very, the Bible is a far more sophisticated diagnoser of our problems very often than we realize. There can be all kinds of causes for worry. So sometimes worry is the right response to a situation or to an issue. Sometimes worry can be caused by uh, physical uh, manifestations. Apparently, if you have an overactive thyroid, you can... uh, one of, the, one of the ways that that gets worked out in your physical life is that you become anxious. Sometimes a person who has, has struggles with anxiety or worry, sometimes it's rooted in past trauma. Or sometimes it is sin. Or any combination of those things. You can't always know, what, is my worry a sin, and is my anxiety a sin, or is it not a sin? We, what we can know for sure, however, is that worry and anxiety are a result of sin. We live in what the Bible calls a fallen world. A world that does not work the way it was supposed to work. God did not design things to operate the way they do. He didn't create us to be anxious and worrisome people at all. Regardless of the cause, though, we know that Jesus does not want us to do it. He wants us to overcome our worry, overcome our anxiety. Because, you see, this stuff sucks the life out of you. It actually, some studies have tried to demonstrate that that worry and anxiety, constant worry and anxiety, can literally take years off a person's life. I don't know how they do that. I don't know the metrics that they use to, to, to figure that stuff out. But that's what some of the research has demonstrated. So Jesus says, do not worry. And when Jesus counsels us and commands us not to worry in this text, he's not doing it like, like you know, an, an angry, impatient uh, older brother or someone who says, just get over it. Some, some really poor cognitive behavioral therapist who just says, stop it. Stop it. Well, but I'm still anxious when you say it. Stop it. That's not how Jesus operates. Instead, Jesus is giving us a prescription that through steady growth in a particular direction, 
we can actually achieve, by his power, some kind of, of victory over our anxiety. This is not a prescription where he says, memorize these verses and say them 12 times and then bang, you're cured. No, no, no. This is something that we need to learn over time. Mark, uh, who knows a lot more about this kind of stuff than I do, says that we need to be weaned off our anxiety through the gospel because we have learned to use our worry and use our anxiety as a way of coping with things. And even though it sucks and it doesn't work very well and it's, it's not good for us or the people around us, we don't know what else to do. And so here comes Jesus and he says, here's what else to do. I'm going to show you how to get off it. So we're going to look at this passage together and learn a little bit about how to be weaned off our anxiety and worry. And we're going to see two things. Jesus shows us the root of our worry and anxiety, and then he gives us the remedy of our worry and anxiety, okay? First of all, the root of our anxiety. Jesus says that, that our anxiety and our worry is rooted in two things, disordered thinking and disordered loving. Disordered thinking, disordered loving. Notice, we're going to look at the thinking first of all. Notice that he says many times, he says, look at Look at the birds of the air and look at the flowers of the field. Consider this, is the way other translations put it. What Jesus is, is saying is he need, you need to combat the wrong thinking that has led to your anxiety and to your worry. And there's two types of wrong thinking in this passage. The first one is wrong thinking about God. We have a low view of God. We think too little of God. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life, is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? We're going to stop there actually at the end of verse 25. Jesus points to these two big things, life and our body. And they're basically the same thing. What Jesus is saying is, look, your life is the important thing, is the big thing. How did you get your life? How did you get your existence? Jesus is saying, God gave it to you. You, you exist because God gave you life. We read about that in Genesis. He breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. And every human being since the beginning has been granted life by God's gracious hand. That's what Jesus is saying. And what he means is, is he says, look, the life, your life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. And he's saying, these things are the important things. Clothes, food, they're the less important things. Life and body is the important thing. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. It's the very same thing that the Apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 8 when he says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What Jesus is getting at is this. Our, root, our worry and our anxiety is often rooted in a failure to understand, acknowledge, and hold on to the character of God. It's anxiety says to God, God, you emptied heaven of your greatest treasure. 
You allowed your son to leave the throne of heaven and to come into this world and live like a poor carpenter, a wandering teacher, and then you allowed him to be killed on this cross to pay the penalty for our sins. You killed your son for me. But I'm not sure you're going to be able to arrange my week. Like, you've saved me, but I don't know if you've got the chops to care for me. I know you'll take me to heaven, but can you handle the stuff i got to deal with on earth? I'm not sure. And I know you're listening to this and you say, that sounds foolish and that sounds kind of harsh. Do we really do that? Well, look at verse 31 and 32. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Don't do that. Don't worry about these things. By the way, he's saying this to people who live in a subsistence culture. You don't typically worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. You just go to the fridge. And then, if it's not in the fridge, you go to the store. These people had a reason to worry about what they will eat or what they will drink or what they will wear because they lived in a subsistence society. Day by day, they were hoping to make enough to make it through that day. But he tells them, he says, don't worry about those things. And then in verse 32, he says this, For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Pagans. What's a pagan? A pagan was someone who didn't know God as Father. So these were the unbelievers. They weren't atheists, okay? These were were people who had other gods that they pushed their trust in, but those gods were not like our heavenly father. And so the pagans had to run after these things. They had to run after food and run after clothes and and run after shelter. And And it made sense that they would have to run after those things. But you don't have to run after those things because you don't just have some God that you're trying to appease. You have a father in heaven. Your God acts like a father. And for us to be anxious is for us to forget the fatherly nature of our God. It is a demonstration of a weak faith. In verse 30, I know this doesn't sound good, but it's true. In verse 30, is it verse 30? Let's see. Uh, see. Ah, yeah, in verse 30. He says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, which will he not much more clothe you, you of faith? Jesus calls his disciples of little faith. Faith in what? In the character of God as our heavenly father. So we've, 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 been, we've been thinking too little of God. And you know what? This might be another way of putting it. Maybe it's another point. I don't know. You're the one taking notes. If you're taking notes, it's your problem to figure out how to structure it. You don't just think too little of God. You think too little of yourself. Now, that sounds okay. In a Reformed Calvinist church, you don't talk like that. So you say, you think too little of how God thinks of you. You don't just think too little of God. I don't just think too little of God. I think too little of how God thinks of me. Jesus repeats over and over and over again. God is our heavenly father. Those of you who have children, those of you who are parents, do you think your kids know how much you love them? How much you think about them? Kids, let me tell you, you have no idea how much your parents think about you. 
you hardly think about them. Like, let's be honest. You do. You probably hardly think about them. You got other fish to fry, other problems to deal with. You're not thinking about how mom and dad are doing. They're just always there. But I can tell you right now, mom and dad, they're thinking about you. They're dissecting your life. Do they have good friends? Do they have enough friends? How can we help them? Uh, facilitate friends? Are they in a relationship with God? They come to church, but are they demonstrating that they love Jesus? How can I help them demonstrate their relationship with Jesus? How can I help them use their gifts? How can I help them figure out what to do with their life? What if they want to meet somebody and they can't meet someone? How can I help them with that? You go on vacation without children. That's what my wife and I do now. And what do you do? You sit around and you talk about them. Not forever. It is astounding the amount of time that parents spend thinking about, concerning themselves, worrying about their kids. Now, if that's what it's like for lousy parents like you and me, what's it going to be like for God? He says, look at the birds. They don't worry about finding their food, but your heavenly Father takes care of them. Look at the grass. It's grass. You walk on it all the time. And yet your father clothes them in robes more beautiful than Solomon. You matter more. It, it is an insult to God's thoughts about you when you worry. See, we think when we're anxious and we're worrying, we think that we're the only person thinking. Think about this. You think, I think, when I'm worried and anxious and worked up about something, I think that I'm the only one who really thinks about this and really cares about this and is really putting energy, mental energy, and sometimes when I'm, you know, getting stomach aches and stuff, physical energy into this issue and into this problem. And yet, what does it say in verse 32? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He already knows. He's already got the problem figured out. He's already addressing it and he's dealing with it. Your thoughts that God doesn't care are utterly wrong. And those thoughts are sinful. Because the story of the Bible, as has been told throughout our uh, liturgy, today is that God ha is faithful through absolutely everything. And we're just not remembering that truth in that story. It's not just disordered thinking though, friends. It's also disordered love because you see, what you worry about are the things that matter to you most. That's why all of us have different worries. That's why we don't all worry about the same things, right? So, so, you know, sometimes, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but sometimes in a marriage you'll have like a husband, you know, he's kind of worried about the finances and he's like, whoa, man, bills are going up and the, uh, you know, the increase in our income is not keeping pace with it. How are we going to pay all this? And, and his wife says to him, come on, Paul, don't worry about it. Trust God. Ah, yes, nice, thank you. And then you're sitting there and you're watching the news and your spouse looks over to you and says, you know, I'm not sure 
that that relationship between those two is going very well. And the husband goes, don't worry about it. God's, God's in control. He's got this. We worry about different things because we have different loves. Some of us worry about money. Some of us worry about friends. Some of us really worry about our reputation. Some of us worry about our, our relationships, broadly speaking. And some of us worry about only specific relationships that are really, really close to us. You know, in verse 25, it says, therefore, I tell you, and it's an old cliche, but, but whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you're supposed to say, what's the therefore, therefore? It means this is based upon what has come before, and Mark talked about this last week. In verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is saying, look, you can't have two centers in your life. You can't have two kings sitting on a throne. You got one kingdom. That's your life. You can't have two kings sitting on that throne. There will be civil war between those kings, and it will tear you up. And Jesus uses money as an example here. And in verses 25 and following, he kind of unpacks that more. But the point is, our worry and our anxiety are driven by our wants. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha. These are his friends. And maybe you're familiar with this story. Maybe not. Jesus goes there, and Martha and Mary are both very excited to have Jesus in their house. And so Martha says, I'm going to put on a feast for him. And she goes into the kitchen. She starts cooking like crazy. And Mary, she sits down in the living room and listens to Jesus probably tell another incredible sermon. He probably never had a bad sermon. So he's leading a Bible study or something, and Mary is sitting there, and Martha comes in, and she's all huffing and puffing and upset. She pulls Jesus aside and she says, will you tell my sister to help me? I am in there slaving away for you to put on this great feast for everybody and she's just sitting there doing nothing. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. You're worried about all these things. But Mary, she picked the right thing. She focused on me first. And his point there, as well as here, is, is that Jesus says, look, if I am not your center, you will be torn up by your worries because you will be like the pagans. Your job will be to run after these things all the time. Running after that job, running after that, getting into that school, running after that girl that you want to, to date you, running after money, running after trying to find a, a spouse or make your spouse happy, running after uh, having a family or, or the family that you have, making sure that they grow up perfectly without any problems and never suffer and, and, and only have, you know, level paths to walk as they, as they mature into adulthood. Worry is like smoke. And what we need to do is we need to follow that smoke down to the desires that are burning in our hearts. I am not saying, friends, that if you're a Christian and you're, you're convicted by this and you, you think, are you telling me I'm not a Christian because I have someone else on the throne instead of God? No, what I'm trying to, to demonstrate is, is that we are always, always, always at war with these disordered loves, loving things out of order. 
making our job more important than our family so that we may be successful at our job, but we end up divorced. Making our health more important than our relationship with God so that whenever we get up in the morning, we don't have time for devotions, but we always have time to, to hit the gym or, or do a 25-minute uh, uh, jumping jack workout or something. I don't know. I don't really work out much. Um, and all these things are promising false rewards. So what we need to do is we need to kick them off the throne of our hearts. So that leads us to the remedy that Jesus offers. In verse 33, Jesus offers this remedy to our worry and our anxiety. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now notice, first of all, Jesus says, all these things will be given to you. He knows these things matter. He, he knows that you've got to get up and go to work so that you can buy food and pay your mortgage or your rent and put clothing on your back. It's not that Jesus is saying these things don't matter, but he's saying they're not first. And I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly convicting because I, 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 I got to admit, <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time thinking about and doing things to satisfy my earthly wants and desires. I spend a lot of physical and mental energy thinking about earthly things, even, even you people. You're very important to me, but you are an earthly thing in the sense that, that, that my vocation is to, to shepherd a community and to pastor a community, but, but you're not my everything. And you have it too. It could be family. It could be schooling. Maybe you're trying to get into a program right now. Maybe you don't know what to do with your life and you go to bed every night anxious about how you're going to find some kind of job that is emotionally fulfilling and uses your gifts and skills and makes you whistle on the way home from work every day. The list goes on and on and on and on. We're starting school pretty soon. Some of you kids might be heading to grade 9. I can tell you, man, when I started grade 9, talk about worry and anxiety. How do I find the cool group and how do I get cool to be cool with the cool group so that I'm cool? I probably spent the whole month of August before every night strategizing, knowing nothing but thinking that this was oh so important. And Jesus is saying, look, seek first my kingdom. In other words, my agenda. We talked about this months and months and months ago. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, where you look to him as the one to satisfy your heart, as the one to, to make your soul sing with a sense of joy and self-worth and knowing that in him it doesn't matter what the world throws at you. He is with you and he delights in you and he cares for you and then pursuing his agenda, which is to see that rule extend to the very ends of the earth. If you would pursue me and my agenda, the rest will take care of itself. That's what Jesus is saying. One simple example. You are very busy. And so, even though you want to have a time, what we call a personal quiet time, devotional time. 
you know, you, you, many of you, even if you don't go to this church, you go to some church, and the pastor at some point has told you it's a really good idea to read your Bible every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, you'll grow, 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 and you want to be a good Christian, and so you feel guilt over the fact that you don't do that, and you want to do that, but your excuse is, is I'm extremely busy, and I simply cannot find the time to do it. And Jesus is convicting your heart, I hope, right now, and saying, you got your priorities backwards. And maybe you say, I did, I did it for a month. I spent 20 minutes a day for a month, and I didn't feel myself grow. Well, that's just a very mercenary understanding of what a relationship with God looks like. It's like, I dated that girl for three weeks, and I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't get anything out of it from her. God promises us. He promises us that if we will pursue him first, other things will follow. And listen, this, this is faith breaking into the now. This is, this is really important. A lot of people think that one day they'll go to heaven. And that's what... Christianity is. Believing in Jesus, putting your trust in him, and then carrying on with your lousy life where you are anxious and you worry about things all the time, but that's just how it is. But at least one day I'll go to heaven and it'll all be over. But understand, Jesus is providing a prescription that can go to work now in your life. You don't take this prescription and put it on the shelf and say, I'll take it when I die. You take this prescription and you put it to work in your life now so that you can grow to be a less anxious, less worrisome person. This is the, this is the practical benefit of trusting what Jesus says. Look, imagine I went out for dinner with you and we're walking to the restaurant and you go, oh man, I forgot my wallet. And I say, ah, don't worry about it. You go, okay. So we go and we sit down. We have a nice dinner. The bill or the, the server comes and says, uh, uh, two bills are one. And I say, two. And you go, what? Yeah, two bills. Normal, isn't it? No, but when I said I forgot my wallet, you said, don't worry about it. Well, you know, I, I just didn't want you to be worried about it in that moment. See, Jesus doesn't make these promises to you so that on Sunday morning, when I try really hard to convict you of this, you won't worry in this moment. He's making these promises to you so that you will not worry into the future. Now, let me close with this. I know that there's a, an unspoken objection here. And I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be accused of not not willing to take tough questions, so I'm going to hopefully answer the tough question right now. You say, but you know, you say all this now, preacher man, but around the world, there's all kinds of people who don't have enough. All kinds of people who are starving, people who are being run out of their villages and having their food stolen from them and they end up in refugee camps, etc. 
And that's true. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus is not, a, uh, is not an idealist. He knows suffering and hardship is going to happen. Back in verse uh, 11 of chapter 5, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, some people do face suffering because of their relationship with Jesus, but just the fact that Jesus mentions that there is suffering and all kinds of evil means he knows. He knows. We live in a fallen world, and there are people who are, are struggling. So how do we reconcile this part with that? Well, Jesus, or God, God and Jesus, give you what you need to live for the time appointed for your lives. This is going to be hard to swallow, okay? God always gives us what we need to live for the time appointed for our lives. In verse 27, Jesus says something strange. He says, first he's talking about, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, etc., etc. Look at the birds, look at the fields, uh, the flowers, all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And you say, well, no, we know that we can't. But it sounds kind of strange, that, like it doesn't fit with verse 25 and 26. But what Jesus is saying is that your time is appointed. Psalm 139, verse 16, says this. All the days adorned from, or <laughs> adorned, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Your life and my life has an appointed time. You're given a certain amount of time to live on this earth. The, the days are numbered by your heavenly Father. Don't freak out about the fact that your days are numbered. Remember, they're numbered by your heavenly Father. And God will provide you all that you need for the days that you are ordained to live on this earth. And you might say, well, that sounds incredibly morbid, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't. It should be an astounding relief to you. You're here because you're supposed to be. And because you're supposed to be, you can be sure that your heavenly Father cares for you. But you want evidence that you are being cared for by your heavenly Father and that your problems and your needs He knows about and He will address and He holds your life in the palm of His almighty hand? You want evidence for that and you can't remember where to go for it in the Bible? Just look at the fact that your heart is still beating. Your heart is still beating due to the gracious providence of your Heavenly Father. And so you don't have to worry. And he's also saying, look, there's more to life than just staying alive. God, God knows what you need to stay alive. But if, if your goal in life is to simply stay alive, you're going to fail. There's a 100% failure rate on that one except once. You need to live for bigger things. And Jesus says the bigger thing is his kingdom. We all need to focus on something bigger than us. 
Focus on God's reign coming into your heart. If you're, if you're a parent, you hope on God's reign coming into your kids' lives. If you, if you're, if you're, if you, if you care about the kingdom of God, you want God's reign to meet your community, your neighborhood, and, and the town of Dundas, and, and, and to the ends of the earth. You want the world to know that there is a God who loved them so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the story you've got to pound into your head. I wasn't sure how to close this sermon. And I never even, I never did figure it out. So I don't have a conclusion. But I do have a prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us not to worry. Oh God Almighty, how hard it is not to worry. How hard it is for us to, to, to think that we do not need to grip the steering wheel of our lives and direct the paths. Forgive us for the ways that we don't trust you, the ways we try to control our lives, our future, and even the lives of people around us, people we love. Forgive us for going to bed forgetting that our Heavenly Father takes knowledge of us constantly and more deeply than any earthly parent has ever done with their own kids. And when we wonder, when we doubt, may we remember the gospel that Jesus, you sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. And you would not do that and then not take care of us, your children. Thank you for the logic of the gospel. Pounded into our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have time for maybe one or two questions. I've got 15 already. No. Um, got, I've got a few. Oh, okay. So someone is actually sharing something helpful. So I'm going to... See, my arms are not long enough anymore is the problem. Um, so this person says that sh studies have shown that gratitude reduces anxiety and depression. The brain can't respond to anxiety and gratitude at the same time. Huh. Uh, which means it's one or the other. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Thank you for that. And then, oh. I gave an answer to a question. What would you say to those that use scripture like this as prosperity gospel, specifically Matthew 7.33 or other verses like it that say, ask and you shall receive? Well, you know, the problem with the prosperity gospel is, is that the actual gospel kind of undermines it. Because the whole prosperity gospel is 
based on this idea that if you do what God wants you to do, he will bless you, right? So if you go to church, give your money to, give your money, give your money to Grace Valley, lots of it to Grace Valley Church, then you will become rich. So basically, if you're good, then good things will happen to you. And then Jesus comes along, and he's the best person who has ever lived. He is the living definition of good. And it seemed like all that ever happened to him was bad in this life. And he says that he came not to give us kingdoms on earth, but to allow us to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, yes, you, if you live a life of obedience to God, your life generally goes better. That's what the book of Proverbs says. But the book of Proverbs also says there are lots of uh, situations in which if you live your life, live a good life, that your life could go off the rails and sideways and all kinds of bad things will happen to you. Why? Not because it's your fault, but because you live in a fallen world. That's what, what you have to remember when you read the book of Proverbs or passages like this one, um, that they're contextual and they're part of a, of a whole story, a bigger story of the whole gospel. Here's, this is a great question. If our days on earth are decided, should we care about our health? Well, <laughs> I like that. I like that. I, I, you know, one of the reasons I like that is because, well, no, I don't um, <laughs> It is interesting, eh? You have, you, have, you have one person who, you know, swims a kilometer every day, eats vegetables all the time, never touches red meat, and then, like, they have a stroke at 70 and they're gone. And then you have the other person who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, sops up the bacon fat with their, with their bread every morning and eats that, and they live till they're 90. And so you say, like, what's the point of it all? <sighs> the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And though the context there is that we should seek sexual purity because of that, as Christians, the greater principle is this. God has given us life and our bodies to be stewarded in a way that is pleasing and honoring to him. And so from a theological perspective, yes, you should care about your health. But from a practical perspective, you should care about your health too. Because on average, a healthier person leads a happier life in the sense that like, hey, because you care about your health, you can run around in the backyard with your children. Or because you care about your health, you are still able to walk uh, in your 70s instead of being, like, crippled. Uh, you generally have a better quality of life if you take care of your health as well. Though, not, it's not a guarantee. You know, Chris Traeger, I was going to use him in my sermon. I didn't, I didn't in the end. You know who Chris Traeger is? Or Traeger? Chris Traeger, he's a character in a show called Parks and Rec. Very funny show. And he is like a total health nut. And, and you should care about your health, but you can care about your health too much. Chris Traeger was a guy who cared about his health too much. Listen to what he says in the first, this is the first episode that he appears on the show. And he's a total health nut. And he says to someone, I take care of my body above all else. 
diet, exercise, supplements, positive thinking. Scientists believe that the first human being who will live 150 years has already been born. I believe I am that human being. But when you watch the show, okay, now there's seven seasons, so I, it takes some time to see this, but when you watch the show, you discover that Chris Traeger is actually a slave to the idol of healthy living. Because anytime he even gets slipped something that was unhealthy, like once he eats real, he drinks real eggnog instead of low-fat eggnog, and he's like raving about how this low-fat eggnog is amazing, tastes better than any that he's ever had, and then someone says, well, that's because it's real eggnog, and he goes, oh, no! <laughs> right? So you can, be, you can be enslaved even to good things. So, yes, Paul says, take care of your body, but he also says, remember... To put first things first, take care of your soul. I'm trying to remember where he says that. Uh, I think it's in Timothy. Anyway, 